Hello, Knowledge Seekers. Scott Hershevitz is Director of the Law and Ethics Program and Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Michigan. Previously, he served as a law clerk for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the U.S. Supreme Court. He's also the author of the new book titled Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. Scott, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. It's my pleasure, Scott. So uh, to start off for a little bit of context, what is philosophy? Oh, that is a really phenomenal question. In fact, the the book starts with uh, my accidentally ending up as a philosopher. I wanted to take a psychology class and it was full and a intro philosophy fulfilled a requirement. And by the second day, I was hooked. And then I went home and I told my parents, I think I'm going to major in philosophy. My dad's question was, what's philosophy? (laughs) And I had no idea how to answer. And that was kind of my persistent state for years until my older son, Rex, was in second grade. And he went to school uh, on the first day and they asked the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said he wanted to be a philosopher of math. And so when he got home, I said, well, you know, your teacher says you want to be a philosopher of math. What's philosophy? And he said, it's the art of thinking, uh, which is, I think, as as uh, good a description as I've ever heard. So I think philosophers are people that find puzzling things about the world and they think about them carefully. Yeah, search for knowledge. I think that's a, a very good description of it. Why are kids so uniquely adept as philosophers? So I think it's a few things. Um, The first is they're new to the world and they're persistently puzzled by it. Um, They don't yet have the explanations for everything that's happening around them and they're trying to make sense of it. So they very frequently question the things that grownups take for granted. I think that's a big part of the reason that kids are phenomenal philosophers. A second part of it is that at least, especially the little kids, they're not afraid of seeming silly. So, you know, an adult might not be willing to venture an answer for something that's that they find puzzling because they're, or, or even to articulate the question that they find puzzling uh, because they're worried that other people will judge them for not knowing the answer or for having such uh, an oddball question. But kids just don't have that worry. So, you know, they're willing to ask questions like, am I dreaming my entire life? Um, or, you know, my, my seven-year-old once, you know, gave me an argument about how big the universe is. He thought that like in his mind, he had figured it out. And, uh, and most adults, I think, even if they had had the set of thoughts he had, wouldn't share them with other people until they'd done some Googling first. Hmm. This book is broken up into three different parts. Part one is making sense of morality. That leads us to chapter one, rights. When I think about the conversation that I have with my kids about rights, Scott, it usually involves the words not fair coming out of their mouths. And I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, those are trigger words for me. I do not like hearing those words coming out of their mouths. Uh, you write that rights are relationships. How so? So I think that, um, that uh, just, let's just take like a, like a simple example to think about like what rights are. Suppose that uh, I borrowed money from you and now uh, it's come due. So I owe you $1,000 today. What does it mean for me to owe you $1,000 today? It means you can claim it for me. You can say, hey, Scott, today's the day. Give me the $1,000. Um, it means that other things being equal, I ought to pay you the $1,000. Now, the other things being equal is an important qualification because you know maybe there's some kind of emergency. I need to pay for my kid's medical care or something. So all things considered, I not pay the $1,000. But generally, when you make the claim, I should deliver what I 
said I would. If I discover I'm going to have some problem, I should tell you in advance. If I can't pay, I've got to make it up to you. And so I think rights are um, uh, a kind of relationship that we often stand in, um, in respect of various things that we might owe each other. I just want to say something about like the kids and fairness. I am 100% with you uh, because it's a kind of all-purpose moral word for little kids. So they've learned to compare themselves to others and to think about fairness in this comparative way. I'm not getting what he got. Um, and so they complain that's not fair, but they often don't see the differences in situation. We go through this with our younger one a lot who doesn't understand why maybe his older brother gets some privileges that, uh, that he doesn't yet. Um, but uh, but I, I share your, uh, your your frustration at the frequency with which that that's the wrong alleged. Well, I think at the foundation of it all, it's an understanding and perhaps it's me being an adult is that life is not fair and it could be your your sibling, it could be your friends, it could be a, a relative or somebody completely different. Like you're gonna have it better than some people. And you're going to have it worse off than some people. And it's all about what you do with those situations. But that's part of the process right now with the seven and five-year-old anyhow is uh, convincing them that even though something's not fair, it's okay to recognize it. That doesn't mean it's a, a good time to throw a fit about it. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, um, you know, uh, there's a conversation about fairness that maybe towards the very end of the book in the conclusion where I'm thinking about how to raise a philosopher. And one of the things I suggest uh, that you do there is when your kid makes these, uh, when, when your kid, you know, complains that something's not fair, uh, start asking them questions, ask them to explain what fairness is. Um, and then I think one of the most important questions is ask whether it's your job to make things fair. I think that's part of what you're part of what you're getting at. Ask them if they think the answer is yes, as they probably will, how they how they would do that. Right. Um, and uh, and sometimes, actually, they'll offer you a kind of creative solution. Maybe it'll be something you can do in the moment or maybe it'll be that, well, it's this time it's benefiting the seven year old and next time something could benefit the, the five year old. But uh, but I but I think like the, the there's an opportunity when kids make these complaints to engage them in a conversation about fairness and, and to lead them to your thought that not everything's going to end up exactly equal on all occasions. Completely agreed with asking them what fairness is. I've definitely gone out down that road before. I have not asked them to explain what they think would fair would be in this situation. So thank you for that advice. I'll make sure to apply that going forward. Chapter okay. two is revenge. I give my kids a choice when one has screwed over the other. My consequences or a bit of eye for eye treatment where uh, they get to decide what the punishment is. Why do they always choose to be the one to carry out the punishment, Scott? Oh, um, you know, I think that uh, we may be hardwired to uh, to take some satisfaction in, in visiting um, uh, unpleasantness on the people who have wronged us. Um, I think there's something self-protective often about uh, about taking revenge. You know, at the very least, you communicate to um, the person who's wronged you and other people that might wrong you that uh, that you're not going to stand for that sort of treatment will get them to think twice about about treating you that way again. Um, so uh, but but I'm actually really curious now when you give them the choice of meeting out the punishment, is it harsher than what you would have you would have done? Is it you know, are they kinder to each other? What happens? Usually it involves something physical. So it's like brother hits sister on the arm. So his sister gets to hit him back on the arm or it has something to do with a, a toy being stolen or destroyed. 
And then I say, look, you want to take one of his toys now or one of her toys now and do do what was done to that so that they kind of learn uh, the disrespect for property. And um, it, I usually try and keep it pretty even. So like if, they, if one of them hits the other one in the arm, I don't let the other one sock them in the nose necessarily. But um, right. they the, the funny thing about it is usually the attempt to exact the same sort of revenge never goes that well because the other one has a chance to brace for it. So inevitably, they're not as physically or emotionally hurt by whatever the response was. Oh, that's really, it's really fascinating. I have a colleague who teaches here at Michigan uh, named Bill Miller, who's one of the world's leading experts on revenge and honor cultures. And, and actually, like, historically, there's a lot of interest in just the problem that you're describing, that, uh, that it's really hard um, to get things to match exactly, maybe, uh, maybe impossible in part because uh, circumstances are different. So if we do an eye for an eye, um, there may be reasons that your eye is more valuable to you than, uh, than my eye is. Um, that's a really fascinating parenting strategy. I don't know that, uh, that I've heard, uh, that I've heard other people describe the, the invitation to, uh, to issue an eye for an eye for an eye. Do they ever pick you? Do you ever say like, I'm going to let dad do it? Mm, usually not. No. I mean, sometimes I, I take the, uh, I take the horse by the reins, so to speak, and just go ahead and, and dole out the punishment when necessary. But usually if I give that option, they, they almost always choose to be the one to carry it out. And it's funny because oftentimes it'll end with both with all of us laughing about the ridiculousness of the situation. So oh, it's wow. one thing if there is one thing, if they're like lying at school or something, or they lie to, to mom or dad about something like, obviously I'm uh, that, that's going to be upsetting. And that's a completely different set of consequences that we're dealing with. But when it's something seemingly trivial between the mm. two of them, uh, letting them try and hash it out with one another, I think right. in, in my mind is healthy because Mom, dad, adults aren't always going to be around and you have to understand how to uh, how to maybe respond if somebody or something has screwed you over. Well, I think it's great that it often ends up in laughter that suggests that you're uh, you're accomplishing something, helping them sort of restore their uh, their positive relationship. But I, but I and I completely agree with what you said at the end. I think like one of the real challenges um, parenting when you have multiple kids is sometimes just staying in the other room and staying out of it and letting them find their way to, uh, to an agreement. Cause you're not always going to be there. Well, the other thing, or one of the things that I have a, a really difficult time with Scott is because my kids are very bright and I have high expectations for them is, is keeping my mouth shut and not always offering up unsolicited advice. And that's not necessarily something in this book, but is that something that you struggle with at all? Because it seems like you have a couple of bright young philosophers in your household of uh, not overstepping that line where you're, you're trying to insist or suggest too many things versus just being supportive of whatever it is that they're doing. I struggle with that a lot. And I think I'm not always great at it because it's hard when you see somebody that you care about that you think is making a mistake or, you know, just hasn't yet found the solution to their problem. I mean, one thing that is that is in the book and that I try to use in these situations is kind of the Socratic method that I use when I teach my law students. So maybe I'll ask some questions here in the hopes that the questions will lead the lead the kid to the to the right set of thoughts. Um, but uh, but I'd be lying if I said I was always always successful at holding back the advice. <laughs> That's fair. Chapter three is punishment. What do exotic animal trainers have to do with punishment or the lack thereof? 
Yeah, so the chapter starts with, um, or maybe not starts, but uh, in the chapter I talk about this uh, article that was in the New York Times maybe 10 years ago, that was one of the most shared, or maybe the most emailed article ever from the New York Times website. It was about uh, Amy Sutherland uh, was the author, and she was writing a book about training exotic animals and, you know, visiting like SeaWorld and watching how they would train a seal to balance a ball on his nose. And then she realized, oh, wait a minute, these things I'm learning at SeaWorld, maybe I can use them on my husband uh, and, and train him uh, to, to put his clothes in the laundry hamper and, uh, you know, put his car keys where they belong so he's not constantly losing them. And so she, she reports that it worked. You know, she would do things like, instead of nagging him about his clothes, she would ignore them if they were on the floor. And then if he put even like a little bit of like one piece of clothing in the hamper, she'd praise him wildly in the way that you would uh, praise an animal that you were trying to train and adjust their behavior. And, um, you know, I, I say in the, in the chapter, like, when you think about spousal relationships, um, I'm amused by this, but I think it I think it worrisome to relate to your spouse in this way where you've seen them as a kind of project or um, something that you're entitled to manipulate and control. But I actually think that um, it's really important to think of very, very young children that way, that um, they're not yet responsible for what they do. Um, you know, when they're two, three, four, they don't really have the capability to reason about things and see that other people are appropriately making demands on them and to adjust their behavior in response to those demands. And so I think for the littlest kids, um, you know, figuring out how you change their environment, how you just adjust their incentives to um, get them behaving well and to create the habits of behaving well, I think is the, is the right kind of approach. And then I think it's important to find a way to transition, right, from uh, from that stage of parenting to a stage of parenting where you treat your child like a person and you um, you treat them like they're responsible for uh, for what they're doing. I think it's important to help help them become responsible for what they're doing. And you said that transition normally happens around five to seven. And the key to effective punishment is uh, making sure that they understand whatever it was that they did wrong in that circumstance. Yeah. So I think that um, at least in my experience, um, you know, somewhere around five to seven is when it felt like um, actually uh, these punishments are real and that I mean them to communicate condemnation, right? You know, when my kid was, um, when, when our kids were two or three and, you know, having trouble sharing and taking things from another kid, you might take it back, give it to the other kid. You might put them in a timeout for a few minutes, but I was never mad at the kid, right? Because, you know, they didn't yet have the capability to uh, to control their behavior is my job to help them develop those skills. Um, somewhere, as you say, like five, seven, could be later with respect to some things, I think, um, you do start to have what philosophers call reactive attitudes. You start to feel angry or resentful or indignant maybe about the way one kid has treated another um, or has treated someone else. And, and I do think it's important to communicate that. As I say, like, I, I think anger is often the wrong emotion. Um, because, you know, you, you're, you're warranted in being angry when someone slighted you, right? But if your kid, if, if one kid has slighted another kid, I think you want to communicate that you're disappointed, you know, send the message that we expect better out of you, but you absolutely have to tell them why, so that you introduce them to those reasons and get them thinking about them, so they can um, account for them in the future. You wrote that punishment should hold open the possibility that we can do it harmoniously. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think live together harmoniously at the end. So, I, I talk about um, uh, a situation where um, my younger son, Hank, was 
um, insolent uh, at bedtime, uh, both in his uh, refusal to go to bed and, and the way he was talking to his mother. And so uh, we, we sent him to bed with the consequence that he wasn't going to be allowed to play Minecraft the next day. And Minecraft is, is maybe the thing he loves most in the world. So, so this was a significant thing for him. And, you know, you could hear him sort of crying in his bed. And I thought it important not to, to leave him, you know, distraught in that way. Um, so I went into his room and we talked a little bit about what he's done. Um, but I also wanted him, like I made silly jokes until he smiled. I wanted him to go to bed feeling like we loved him, that he's a member of this family, that he always will be, notwithstanding the fact that you did something bad. And then I, I really would like people to take away a kind of similar message for um, how we think about punishing adults in our society. Um, that, uh, you know, in almost every case, the people we punish are going to become part of our communities again. But I don't think we, um, I think too often we don't treat them that way. We don't treat them with a kind of basic dignity and, uh, and respect. And, uh, and I think that that has, it's bad for them. And I think ultimately it turns out to be bad for us too, because if you don't treat people with dignity and respect, you shouldn't, ex you shouldn't expect to get that treatment in return when they rejoin the community. Hmm. Chapter four is authority because I said so is very lazy parenting, but it's also understandable at times when you are just tired of trying to get through to them as to why something is going down. Why is it important to try and avoid because I said so whenever possible, Scott? So I want my kids to be able to make decisions for themselves someday. So I think they need to understand why I'm making the decisions that I am when, um, as you say, like when there's when there's time to explain or when I think it might be um, something that the child could understand, right? So with like, you know, with a two-year-old or three-year-old, there may be reasons you're making decisions that aren't going to make sense to them yet. So maybe you give them a very basic version and save the, save the, the more detailed explanation until they're older. But certainly at the stage my kids are at, sometimes I need to say, this is how we're going to do things. But a 12-year-old can probably understand my reasoning. So if, if I don't have time to explain it now, then I should explain it later. Hey, let me tell you why I made that decision that I did and be open to having a conversation about it. So I, I think that, uh, you know, the chapter is sort of struggling with the question, can because I said so ever be a reason for one person to do uh, what another person is telling them to do? And I think in some circumstances it can be, right? If we're in an emergency and, you know, like the plane is going down and the flight attendant is telling us how we're gonna get off the plane to maximize everyone else's chances of getting off, I think it would be a crazy thing to do for people on the plane to start debating whether she's got this right and maybe we should do it a different way. We're just going to end up in chaos. We should do what she says. She's been trained for this moment. Um, so I do think because I said so can be in some circumstances a compelling reason. But if you want your kid to be responsible for themselves someday, uh, you also have to share why you said so. Agreed. You write that even in the most asymmetrical relationships, power is rarely one-sided. How so? Oh, I mean, just think about uh, the way your children manipulate and control your behavior. So, uh, you know, the, the chapter on authority begins with uh, Rex's refusal to wear shoes when we're leaving the house, which, uh, you know, fortunately, we're now way past the stage where the protest was, I'm not putting on my shoes. But we spent years in battle over um, will you put on your shoes? Uh, not will you put up like, you know, I say put on your shoes and he says no shoes. And in some days uh, we left the house with shoes on his feet. And some days we left the house with shoes uh, on the floor of the car in the hopes that I'd get them on later or his teachers would get them on um, because 
I, you know, you, well, you have kids, you know what they do. They, 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 you know, throw a tantrum, they cry, they, you know, you know, you're worried you're going to be late for work. Uh, uh, you know, power is, um, uh, even in situations I say that are hierarchical, parent and child, boss and employee, right? Employees can slow work down, employees can walk out. Um, power is often sort of shared and negotiated. Yeah, the big one in our house is jackets. For whatever reason, even when it's freezing outside, our kids don't want to put their jackets on to go to school. They know that they're going to need the jackets to play outside, but it's just this tooth pulling process. Where, where do you live? I live in Austin, Texas. So it doesn't okay. get crazy cold here, like up in Chicago or something, but yeah. uh, it's still it'll still get chilly in the winter, especially for kids that are used to wearing shorts and t-shirts year round. I mean, when it's in the forties yeah. or thirties outside, you need to put your jacket on. Yeah. My son, especially it's, it's a version of the shoe thing too, where he always wants to wear slides or flip-flops. And it's like, dude, you got to wear shoes to school. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm raising Michigan kids and I do think like, uh, like when they've grown up in the cold or a little, little bit of a different breed, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I do think like my, my adolescent, um, uh, at the beginning of this winter, we thought his main goal in life was never to have any of his friends see him wearing a jacket. <laughs> um, and, and eventually we knew that real winter had arrived when, when he caved. That's funny. All right. Chapter five is language. Scott, why are some words bad? So I think it's a really interesting question. It's a question I've been thinking about since I was a kid. It's just puzzling that, you know, here's a word and everyone agrees that you can't say it, but there's other words that mean the same thing. And it's fine to say those words. And, uh, you know, I found an explanation uh, that I found compelling um, from a philosopher of language named Rebecca Roach, who describes a process she calls offense escalation. She says, look, it's hard to know why it gets started with particular words, but if a word becomes disfavored, um, then uh, when you say that word around other people, they're going to be offended by it. And then once people know that people are going to be offended by that word, the process repeats. Wow, you said this word that you know that I'm going to find offensive. Now I'm really offended that you've said uh, that you've said this word. And she says, um, you know, like the, the words that have this, um, that undergo this process, they tend to have some things in common. They tend to be related to taboo topics like sex or defecation or disease, blasphemy maybe. Um, a lot of them are also kind of short, harsh sounding words. Um, you know, she says at one point, like whiffy and slush are not going to be swear words because you, you can't use them to convey that you're angry or upset or frustrated. You know, it's like the short, like staccato words that work well for that. Um, but, but I think it's, I think it's entirely conventional that, um, that some words rather than uh, others I'm talking, I'm talking delicately. Cause I don't know, I don't know what we're allowed to say on your, on your podcast. You can, say, you can say, fuck, you can say whatever you want to Scott. Oh. If, you really, if you want to say the N word, I'm probably going to bleep you, but I don't think you're going to say the, N-word. I definitely don't want to say the N word as you can uh, tell from the end of the chapter, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's really unclear why it's, you know, uh, shit and not crap or poop but uh you know surely there's a there's a story for a historian to tell somewhere as to how that came to be the word um that underwent this process of offense escalation well then there's a word like bullshit that i understand the word shit is in there but it's such an effective and important word in our language like that word should just be flat out aloud even if we're talking about 10 in the morning on network television yeah there's uh you know there's a discussion in the chapter of a of a book by a philosopher named Harry Frankfurt, which became kind of popular maybe 15 or 20 years ago called On Bullshit. 
that uh, where it was an attempt to figure out just what bullshit is. Mm. And, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a small volume. It's fun. His, his idea of what bullshit is, is that it's what you're bullshitting when you're talking without caring what, whether what you say is true. So uh, it's different than lying, right? Um, it's not that you believe that what you're, you're saying is false, you know, maybe sometimes you do, but you just don't really care. You're just, you know, you're making up a story, you're bullshitting your way through it. One thing I think is interesting is I think that's a kind of bullshit, but I don't think it's the only kind of bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and, and I don't know that I have a better theory of bullshit yet, but like, it makes perfect sense to say, oh, like flopping in soccer is bullshit. <laughs> and I think it is, um, but, but it's unclear how that kind of bullshit relates to the kind of thing we do when we're bullshitting. An earlier conversation on this podcast with uh, John V. Petrocelli, who wrote a book called The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. And he uh -huh. breaks down the different types of bullshit, how to call somebody out on bullshit, how to detect it, obviously, as the title would suggest. Highly recommend folks go back and check out that episode. Uh, but as far as language is concerned, Scott, I need to share a little story with you uh, regarding my seven-year-old. When she was almost three, it was July 4th. I remember this very clearly here in Texas, obviously in July, it is quite hot and sunny outside. We were loading up into the car to go to a July 4th party. And it was her, me and her first. And she had gotten to the point where she knew how to kind of buckle herself in. And as we were waiting for mom and brother to get outside, she said, daddy, can you please give me my sunglasses? And I said, absolutely, honey. Why do you need your sunglasses right now? And she said, because of the fucking sun. And yeah. I, I looked back at her, kind of chuckled, and I'm like, I'm sorry, what did you just say? She said, can I please have my sunglasses with this cute little three-year-old smile on her face? I said, no, after that. She said, oh, because of the fucking sun. And I had to give it to her, Scott, because she had perfect context uh, on that uh, seemingly serious cuss word. And that brings me to my question of how much context actually matters when we're talking about most bad words. Oh, a ton. I mean, I, I, I want to say something about the story, which I, I love. Um, and, uh, you know, for anybody out there who's thinking, oh, like Trey, what, like Trey must be a bad parent. This is just completely typical that um, children, say, between three and seven mo master most swear words, including <laughs> including the most extreme swear words. So it's, it's not at all. It's just it's just a reflection of the fact that they exist in the world. It's not at all um, a reflection of deficient parenting. And it sounds like your parenting it sounds like you're parenting well because she used it so perfectly. <laughs> um, so. Uh, uh, you know, I think that context matters a ton. And that's one thing I've wanted to convey to children, which is that um, it's not that these words are completely off limits. Um, I think that's, that's the wrong way to go about parenting. It's that there's a time and a place and a way in which you may say them. So in our house, you may not say them in ways that are mean or demeaning of other people. Um, you know, that's off limits. You need to understand that you can't say them at school. You can't say them at synagogue. But if you're hanging out with your friends playing a video game and something bad happens, that's the context in which uh, in which you can use the word or you're telling that you're 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 telling a story and it's funny, um, you know. So I think that um, there's actually there's a, um, there's a lot of research about swear words and a lot of research about the productive role that they play in, in a lot of social relationships, um, that they help people make connections and, uh, and get along in difficult circumstances. And I, and I want my kids to grow up into adults that can, that can say, um, I need my sunglasses because of the fucking sun um, in, the, in the right context um, and have people, be, uh, have people be appreciative. 
Yeah, I think the other important thing with teaching kids about uh, the the value of understanding when certain words are allowed and when they're not is uh, you gain a greater understanding and respect for language on the whole. And I think it teaches you also to become a critical thinker. So much to what you just said, we talk with our kids about language all the time. And yeah, my son probably said fuck the other day when we were playing Super Smash Brothers and he got killed by the computer. Uh, but uh, we tell them, look, there, there may be a time and place for just about every word. There are some words, racial slurs, for instance, that you should probably avoid at all costs. But even then, words like racial slurs, if they appear in a movie and it's being done so for effects, like that's why that word shouldn't be flat out illegal necessarily. But if you're trying to say certain words that you can say around mom or dad, like you said, at school, at church, around your grandmothers, you will pretty immediately get in trouble for that because unfortunately, the context there doesn't just have to do with what you're saying. It has to do with the audience as well. Yeah. And I, so I agree with you. And we've got the same lines in our house. I think slurs are different than swear words because they're always demeaning, right? So if you're starting from the, the view that, hey, we're not going to use words in a way that, um, that tear other people down that are demeaning, um, then you're going to put slurs in a different category than swear words. That's uh, very well said there. Part two of this book is making sense of ourselves. That leads us to chapter six, sex, gender, and sports. Sports, especially around the time that humans reach puberty, becomes very sexually segregated. Why? So the the chapter starts with this story. The first time my uh, older son Rex ran a 5K, he was in second grade and, uh, and he did great. We were excited to see him run and uh and um, celebrating at the finish line. And I said to him, you know, hey, did you see what your friend, uh, in the book I call her Susie, because I've changed the names of the kids that aren't mine, see what your friend Susie did. She, um, she finished, I think, a, a good seven minutes before Rex. She comes from a family of runners. Uh, she was the first girl to finish, and she was also just the first to finish among second graders, period. Beat all the girls, beat all the boys. Um, but one of those boys got a first place medal, nonetheless, because, even at that age, the local elementary school was segregating this race. Boys and girls were running at the same time, but not against each other. And so that, that's an occasion to ask the question, hey, look, what are we up to here? Why do we have one race for boys and one race for girls? I say in the chapter that I'm not sure that we should for the youngest kids, um, because as this story illustrates, you know, in second grade, there really isn't any differentiation. Um, uh, by sex, and I think she like might be good for the boys to run against the girls and know that you know the girls are competitive and and uh, and may beat them. Uh, you know, as you say, uh, as you suggest that that approach has a kind of short self life because there'll be some point um, in the development of these kids where um, you know though many girls will still continue to beat um, many boys at the very tail end of performance, um, we would expect. Uh, you know, the, the fastest boys to outrun the, the fastest girls. And so um, I actually really loved doing the research for this chapter because I learned about the uh, a field called philosophy of sport. And there's some really terrific um, feminist writers who think about sports. And uh, one in particular whose work I found really persuasive was this philosopher named Jane English. And she was a really talented amateur athlete herself. And she says, look, let's just think about why we engage in sports. She says, there's 
two main reasons. There's what she calls the basic goods of sports. Those are things like we participate for health and for fun and for self-respect, the chance to develop our skills. And she says, look, sports should be available to absolutely everybody for those reasons, right? You know, everybody should be able to sign up to, to run in the race or to play in a soccer league. She says there's another kind of benefit that sports have, what she calls the scarce benefits of sports. Those are things like the chance to win the race or to, you know, play in the professional league and get fame and fortune. And she says just in the nature of those things that they're not going to be accessible to everyone. Um, You know, not everybody can win the race or not everyone can play a sport at its highest level. And uh, when she's thinking about sex equality in the context of sport, she says, look, for the basic sports, as she said, everyone needs the chance to participate. But for the scarce goods, she thought, um, it's important that women be able to claim an equal share of them, right? So no individual woman can say, hey, I should get a chance to win the race, or I should get a chance to play in a professional league. But our society accords lots of influence and power to people who excel in sports. And if we didn't have women's sports, those opportunities to achieve that fame, that fortune, that influence over our society would only be available to men. And so like, that's the kind of argument for having um, a WNBA and a, and a, and a, a women's national soccer team and on and on. Um, and, uh, and I find that argument really compelling. Well, and uh, just speaking about the biological importance of competition and same-sex competition, I spoke with Franz DeWall recently, who is a renowned primatologist about his new book, Gender, that really does a great job of breaking down a, a bunch of stereotypes that we have about the genders through the eyes of a primatologist. So he's spent much of his professional life studying chimps and bonobos, which of course are the animals that are closest to us genetically. And he says in those worlds, at young Younger ages and at older ages, you oftentimes see the males and females breaking up into their specific sex and competing with one another or playing with one another. And so it's not unnatural, although the conversation has obviously shifted over the last couple of years with transgender athletes to uh, to want to play against those that you identify with the most. Yeah, so uh, I really enjoyed that interview. It was it was uh, terrific, and I recommend people uh, people listen to it. Um, I, so I, I so once you so I just gave you an argument for having sports that are segregated, men's sports and women's sports, at least um, at least among adults. And, and uh, you know, once you decide you're going to have that practice, it raises this kind of practical question of uh, who's going to count as a woman for purposes of, of women's sports, and. Um, uh, I started uh, when I, you know, I started thinking about this um, in part because uh, my son asked, we were watching the women's soccer team and he asked whether a trans woman could play women's sports. And at the time, I'm not even sure that we knew what the rule was. Um, so, uh, so that got me thinking about it and reading, as I said, lots of feminist philosophy, lots of trans philosophers. And I didn't know where I'd come out, what I th- would think was the right answer when I when I finished, but as I as I learned more about it and thought about it, I came to think that um, as, as I think is true in lots of areas of life, or all really all areas of life, that if somebody identifies as a woman, sees themselves as a woman, that we should um, respect that and treat them as a woman. And I think that extends even to sports. And I think there's a kind of mistake people are making when they say, "Hey, no, wait a minute!" Like we had biological reasons for having men's and women's sports to begin with. And so we have to um, track biology in the way that we um, uh, determine eligibility for sports. 
I think that um, actually the science here is more muddled than you might guess. So, so a lot of people are just assuming that trans women will have um, an advantage because of, of the course of their biological development. And uh, the, the, the science as to whether there is an advantage, especially when somebody has taken hormone therapy, is really um, uh, equivocal. And, uh, and th I think there's much less evidence um, across a lot of contexts that there's uh, a kind of built-in advantage that you might suspect is evidenced by the fact that there are trans women participating in many sports and uh, and cis women are holding their own um, in competition quite frequently. So, so that's a kind of like factual issue. But the more important thing I think is uh, is we need to remember that um, all athletes are biologically different from one another. And uh, you know, you watch Usain Bolt in a race or Michael Phelps in a race, and uh, and you know that they've got biological advantages over their competitors. Phelps had a body with very odd proportions, an extraordinary wingspan, and very large hands and very large feet um, that allowed him to become the the greatest swimmer of of all time. And um, you know, uh, and I think what, so. So so that's the first thing to say is there's always biological differences among competitors. And then I just want to go back to what we learned from Jane English. Remember, what she taught us is that um, nobody has an individual right to the scarce benefits of sports, right? That nobody has a right to be the person who wins the race. And in fact, she would tell us nobody even has a right to a level playing field. If you were in the starting blocks about to race Michael Phelps, you probably wouldn't be thinking, I've got a chance to win this race, right? You'd be thinking, well, that guy was, that guy was blessed by uh, advantages that I don't have. Maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe he won't have his best day, but this is not a competition that I've got a good shot to win. But nobody ever said, hey, let's get Phelps out of the pool or let's get Bolt off the track um, and give these other guys a chance to win. So um, I think that uh, in general, we ought to respect people's self-understanding and sports just strikes me as another place where that's true. Generally speaking, I agree with you. I don't want to preface what I'm about to say the way that I preface it with Franz DeWall, and that is uh, trans people deserve our love and support as much as anybody else. Having said that, though, when you're talking about somebody who has gone through puberty and there are actual advantages that come with that if you are a biological male versus a biological female with uh, bone density, uh, general strength, the strength of tendons, tissues, muscles, things like that. And then you talk about somebody making it all the way through puberty without having to take what are essentially performance enhancing drugs to quote unquote, level the playing field with biological females, that's where I think there's a little bit of an issue. And while I am amongst those who is trying to figure out a proper solution right now, I don't know if allowing somebody in true competition, and obviously the best example that we have right now, Scott, is Leah Thomas, who was just swimming as a women's swimmer after spending a year at Penn as a men's swimmer. And even though her times did go down in the various events that she was competing in, uh, she she was still uh, defeating women and setting records at a number of events. I think that that's, there's a clear distinction there versus somebody who is starting that process pre-puberty, which gets into a, which gets into a, a very, uh, a very muddled conversation, obviously, with regards to what is acceptable, what's not acceptable, uh, with regards to letting somebody make lifelong decisions uh, that will have an impact for the rest of that person's life. But as far as somebody who has gone through puberty already, who wants to compete at the college level, at the Olympic level, at the professional level as a woman, once they've already gone through puberty as a man, I just have a hard time accepting that because, uh, 
it just seems like you're screwing a lot of biological females in the process. Yeah. So I think it's just that last little bit that I want to push back on, okay. right? The thought that, that somebody here is going to, so the, um, a philosopher who's really influenced the way that I think about this, uh, uh, her name is Veronica Ivy, and she's uh, a trans athlete. And she wrote an article once about the um, the the women's high jump competition in the Olympics. The person who run was who won was eight inches taller than the person who lost. And uh, you know, surely um, that provided a kind of biomechanical advantage that um, that let this person uh, jump higher than some of her competitors. Um, but nobody said, oh, hey, look, you know, this is an unfair competition because you've got this different biology than me. Um, so uh, so that, you know, means that it's not fair for me to compete against you. I think that um, the kind of sex differences that you're talking about, they're just further different kinds of uh, further um, further differences in biology. And um, and, you know, might they sometimes uh, provide advantages sure but they're just like one among of many of uh you know biological differences that people might have that uh that could provide an advantage and i'm not sure we have a good reason for singling those out and saying let's treat these biological differences uh differently than we think of natural height differences or natural uh strength differences um uh but you know uh, there was one thing that dewall said in the interview that i thought was actually also important because um you know he he said that, that sports is just one small part of um, a bigger question, really a bigger problem in our society of how are we gonna treat people with respect? How are we gonna welcome them in, into our community? And, and it's maybe for the reasons you're describing um, the most difficult, challenging, fraught place in which to have this conversation. So if we had basic agreement um, everywhere else in life that, uh, that we were gonna treat trans people with respect, then, um, then uh, you know, I, I might find it easier to to uh, to engage the question about what we should do in sports. But I do worry that we've we've kind of allowed, um, uh, you know, as Dewall said, a kind of um, uh, a question about you know a very small handful of athletes to loom very large um, in the way we think about a much more uh, pressing social problem. That's fair. Let me ask this question before we move on. Uh, with regards to transgender athletes, there are, are folks out there who identify as a race other than their own. Uh, an example from the past 10 years is Rachel Dolezal, who was a white woman, but she identified as African-American. Should somebody like that be allowed access to something like scholarships intended for African-Americans? So I so there's a, a really interesting question. It's an active, uh, active uh, topic of conversation among philosophers. So like, what's the relationship or what are the similarities and differences between um, being transgender and being what some people want to call transracial? And there was a really interesting article um, by a philosopher named Robin Dembroff that I found very helpful in thinking about this issue that suggested that race and gender function really differently in our society, that um, gender is, um, well, I was really start with race, actually, that, um, that the way race functions in our society is a kinds of, uh, is it, it transmits a kind of historical disadvantage, right? If you're um, black in America today, very frequently, your, uh, your parents were subject to discrimination um, 
which has affected your life opportunities and that their parents were subject to probably even a set of harsher discrimination and go back far enough and maybe you arrive at a place where um, where people were enslaved. And so there's a kind of through, through the status of race in our society, um, historical advantages and disadvantages are, are handed down from generation to generation. So to decide at one moment, oh, I'm switching um, is, uh, is uh, you know, Dolezal can say if, if she wants to that she's black, but that, that, doesn't, uh, that, that doesn't mean that she's situated in the world the way a black person would be as having had parents who say didn't get to go to college or didn't get to own property um, because of, of their race. Um, so gender works really differently in our society. Um, it's also uh, a way in which people are discriminated against and disadvantaged, but it doesn't tend to pass down from generation to generation in the same way. If you are a woman now, you are at risk of being catcalled in the street and paid less for the same work than a man would be. Um, and so it's it doesn't have this kind of um, uh, historical transmission of disadvantage. The disadvantage is a kind of present state. And Dembroff says, um, this is a reason to think about these, um, uh, to think about transgender um, identification and transracial identification differently. I think the reason it's off-putting when Dolezal says, hey, I see myself as Black, give me, you know, benefits saying college admissions or um, or scholarships as you like in other ways, to say, well, wait a minute, like, you're not, like, you're, you, your family weren't subject to the historical injustices that those programs are attempting to remedy. But at the same time, she has a stronger argument as being African American than somebody who was born a biological male claiming to be female, because if you go back far enough, we're all African, Scott. Yeah, so, um, it, yeah, I think you want to be careful about how about what we mean when we say something like that, which is to say all human beings so far, uh, all human beings um, are descended from populations that lived in Africa. That's true. Um, but uh, but that's not really what we mean when we say that somebody's African-American in the United States today. What we're doing is um, we're describing a position in a kind of social hierarchy created by slavery, where people who had come to this part of the world from Europe forcibly brought people who were then in Africa here and created these kinds of new identities, right? Like, like that's when you get the idea that some people are white and some people are black. And it was um, a way of creating a kind of um, social hierarchy so that some people could be treated um, as less than human, as appropriately enslaved. Yeah, boy, that's a fascinating answer there. I feel like there's, uh, it's not absolute though. And there, there are the, those families who have, at, have been able to fight through the, uh, the grave injustices from the past hundred plus years to actually create better lives for themselves and their families going forward. And there are plenty of examples that you can point to in the past where the, uh, where the oppression of women has been passed on from generation to generation. And so it's, it does feel like it is sliding that sex just a little bit to all of a sudden just say because somebody feels like they should be they should now be identified as a female versus the biological male that they were born as that we just need to accept them as that because that uh i i think that does maybe um put down the the suffering the pain and the the fights a lot of women over the years have had to go through in order to gain the level of respect that now exists in 2022 so i think that um 
a lot of uh, a lot of trans women w- would um, would say, look, when you uh, when you um, when you become a trans woman, you are you're opting in right to to that sort of treatment. Um, so is, become, so is Rachel. So is Rachel Dolezal, though. Um, well, you, you know, to a component of it. And I, and I think this is and I think this is where the difference in these stories lie. So um, she may be, uh, as I said, like seen now um, or may have been seen uh, as black and and um, disadvantaged or discriminated against in the in um, in present uh, in, in the present uh, because of that. But um, her her family had not um, experienced the the kind of uh, you know I, I think people often underestimate just how um, much of the the present day differences that we see um, in wealth and education trace to our history of um, you know of. Uh, not allowing people access to college, of not allowing people access to property ownership, of redlining so that people couldn't um, couldn't take out loans. Uh, that um, that is the source of a lot of our historical disadvantage. Um, and and Dolezal's family wasn't uh, wasn't subject to that kind of disadvantage. But a lot of things apply to women as well. Anyhow, this is a fascinating conversation. We're probably starting to go in circles here. I appreciate you humoring me. I figured that we could do this because you are a philosopher. You're somebody who loves to share ideas. So uh, thank you for that back and forth. And that leads us to chapter seven, which is race and responsibility. Uh, You talk in this chapter about the responsibility of white people uh, to, uh, to take responsibility for the racist sins of our past and whether or not that is something that is acceptable. The idea of taking responsibility for something that you aren't actually responsible for strikes me as odd. It's kind of like apologizing when you have nothing to be sorry for. But is there a good reason to take responsibility like this? And if so, what is it? So actually, let's just think about like apologizing for something that you're not responsible for. Because I, I think there's uh, one thing that philosophers in my corner of the world, people who think about moral philosophy, legal philosophy, are interested in is the many different ways in which we can be responsible for something. So I can be responsible in the sense that I'm to blame for something. And if I'm to blame for it, I should be apologizing for it. I can also be responsible even when I'm not to blame, it might just be my responsibility to fix the mess, right? So you see this in in the different kinds of legal consequences that, um, that you get, which is to say, like, I can be prosecuted for something I've done through the criminal law and um, condemned for it and sent to prison for it. Um, but there's another kind of responsibility. Say I say I'm a like I'm I manufacture a product. There's a famous uh, case uh, uh, in products liability law uh, from the 1940s. Coke makes a you know Coke a Coca-Cola bottle explodes in a waitress's hand, and nobody says, oh look, you know Coca-Cola, you're 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 bad for making a bottle that exploded. Nobody says, uh, you know, hey, we ought to put some people from Coca-Cola in jail because the bottle exploded, and you know. Uh, really uh, severely injured this woman's hand. But we do say, as a matter of law, hey, Coke, her injuries are your responsibility, right? You make millions, billions of these bottles, some of them are going to explode. And it makes sense not to just like leave people like, you know, that, that happen to be holding the bad bottle, like coping with those injuries. If we make Coke fix these injuries, then everyone has some assurance, hey, I can go buy Coke and I know that, you know, I'm going to be taken care of if I happen to be holding the bottle that had a defect in it. Um, So that's a different kind of responsibility. Hey, this mess is yours. 
um, even if you're not morally to blame for having created the mess. We don't think you're bad, Coke, for selling billions of bottles. So, um, so I think actually, like, just think about parenting again for a moment. I think parents are constantly taking responsibility for things that aren't their fault. My kid breaks something of yours. I'm going to fix it, even if I don't. Even if I don't think that um, that like it was my bad parenting to let that led them to break it. It's just like, you know, I don't want my kids to be your problem. So if my kid came over to your house and he knocked that vase off the table, I'm going to be like, hey, could you tell me how much that cost or where you got it? Or can I buy you another one? Um, I'm going to take responsibility for the mess my kid made. And I think there's um, something similar um, about, uh, uh, I, I I think white people in the United States should have a similar attitude towards the disadvantage and discrimination that we see around us. That uh, like the, the view I have is not that every white person is, uh, is personally to blame or needs to be apologizing for slavery or for Jim Crow or um, redlining. Um, but I do think like we share this world today and, um, and uh, if you're um, born into the world and white that comes with some advantages, some privileges um, that people who are black don't have. And as I say in the book, if you're sitting atop this, the social hierarchy, which really not really ought not exist, then I think it's not unreasonable to take some responsibility for it and try and find a way to lift other people up, even if you think it's not my fault that uh, that there is this, uh, that there are these um, uh, disparities in the world. It's so interesting because much like with gender, race is a sort of social construct, but it seems counterproductive to try and completely ignore somebody's ethnic makeup, which is obviously a part of what goes into a supposed racial makeup. Do you agree with this, that ignoring somebody's ethnic makeup is a a fool's errand? Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of people want to think, oh, here's what I have to do. I have to just not see color. And um and I think if, if you choose not to see color in our world, you're choosing to ignore um, our history and the disadvantages that some people still have because of our history. So I think it's important to see it and acknowledge it and to, um, and to, and to want to work to change it. It's not, it's not an accident that um, the average black family in the United States has 15% of the, the wealth of the average or the median black family is 15% of the wealth of the average white family. There's a history to that. And I think we should, um, we should face up to that history and think like, well, how can we bring out about a world that's, that's more equal and more fair? And embrace our differences, by the way. So uh, that, that kind of leads to the idea of reparations. Are reparations a part of the solution to make up for racism in your mind? And if so, what does that look like, Scott? So I think that... Um, that we should be interested. I say, uh, I think people often think about reparations the wrong way. The line in the book is I say, we should understand this to be a project, not a payment, right? So there may be some role that that um, that money has to play. And you see various institutions, I think, um, taking some steps that are constructive. So Georgetown University um, was once on the verge of bankruptcy, I believe. And then they, they sold slaves that they had owned uh, to sort of um, stabilize the financial situation of the college. And some historians actually tracked down the descendants of the slaves that had been uh, sold by Georgetown. Um, and Georgetown is, um, is taking steps to make amends. It's offering scholarships and I think maybe even uh, possibly some, some cash payments. But I think that sort of thing can be constructive, but that's not really how I think about reparations as a kind of cash payment. 
I think we, we want to live in a society, we should want to live in a society that lives up to our founding ideals, right? That, that says in the Declaration of Independence that, that all men are created equal. And, uh, and I think we should want to live in a society that treats people equally. And so um, we should be working together to find ways where people are treated as equal before the law and we don't see disparities in punishment. We're treated as people are treated as equally in, um, in employment opportunities. I say, uh, I don't know if I would say it in the book, but I, I think it's some, sometimes I think like we'll know that we've gotten there when it would be difficult for a visitor who wasn't familiar with our history to look around and, and figure out which group of people here was the group of people that was treated really poorly at the outset of this uh, at the outset of this country. And right now we're not even close. It'd be it'd be easy to figure out. And I think we got to we got to mend our society. No doubt about that. While paying individuals may get a bit tricky, I think that the idea of investing in infrastructure in poor communities, getting back to your uh, your socioeconomic comment from a, a few answers ago, I think that is crucial to make sure to try and set up uh, those individuals who live in poor communities with as good a chance as possible to find success in life. I think that is a big deal. All right, we'd happen to fast forward just a little bit because we're sure. running short on time to chapter 12, God. You don't believe in God, Scott, but you're okay pretending. Why? Yeah, so I um, I struggle. So I say I'm I'm not. I don't feel um, uh, certain enough to say that God doesn't exist. But I, so I guess I fall in this category of agnostic, which is to say uh, I'm skeptical. One of the reasons um, skeptical it was really well articulated by my older son Rex recently. Um, who says he was having trouble believing because he looks around the world and he sees all the awfulness, whether it's the pandemic or the war, and just thinks, why would God let us suffer that way? So philosophers traditionally call this the problem of evil. And, uh, and I read a lot in the, in the book about um, the way um, religious philosophers try and reconcile the existence of evil in the world with the, uh, with the existence of God. Um, I'm not sure that I'm there. I'm not sure that I see a way to, to reconcile them. But I say, nevertheless, religious rituals and religious community play an important role in my life. That's something else I learned from, uh, from my son when he was four years old. Uh, he asked whether God was real. And I said, hey, buddy, what do you think? And he said, for real, God is pretend. And for pretend, God is real. And I was just so struck by that because I thought like, you know, he said, he's like, he like asked him to tell me what he meant. He said like, well, when we pretend God is real, and I think there's a lot to be said in life. It's, you, like you notice this when you have little kids, there's a lot to be said for pretending. Um, and I think it can make life more meaningful. And even though um, I'm not sure I believe in God, I find a lot of value from going to synagogue and participating in the traditions that, um, that, uh, that my family, my people have participated in for generations and celebrating these holidays, even if it's a, a kind of, of pretend, um, it makes my life more richer and, and more meaningful. Very well said there. All right. Last thing, Scott, in the conclusion may actually be after the conclusion. You write that the most important books that you can buy your kid is the complete Calvin and Hobbes collection by Bill Watterson. I just want you to know that I have a five-year-old blonde-haired son named Calvin who is named that in large part because of that comic strip. So I agree with you on that. And I think at a certain age, it's probably worth investing in the far side as well. Yeah, the far side's great too. Calvin and Hobbes, I think, is the best possible introduction to philosophy. You don't know that you're doing philosophy, but uh, but very often Calvin is uh, is uh, is playing with philosophical ideas uh, just just in a, in a way that's the most fun possible. 
No doubt about that. He is Scott Hershevitz, director of the Law and Ethics Program and professor of law and philosophy at the University of Michigan. Previously, he served as a law clerk for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He's also the author of the new book titled Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. Scott, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. This was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to Josh Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. And thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.